Chapter Twenty Three of Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twenty Three: A Night of Terror. To Jane Clayton, waiting in the tree where Werper had placed her, it seemed that the long night would never end. Yet end it did at last and within an hour of the coming of dawn her spirits leaped with renewed hope at sight of a solitary horseman approaching along the trail. The flowing burnoose with its loose hood hid both the face and the figure of the rider, but that it was M. Fakul the girl well knew, since he had been garbed as an Arab, and he alone might be expected to seek her hiding place. That which she saw relieved the strain of the long night vigil, but there was much that she did not see. She did not see the black face beneath the white hood, nor the file of ebon horsemen beyond the trail's bend riding slowly in the wake of their leader. These things she did not see at first, and so she leaned downward toward the approaching rider, a cry of welcome forming in her throat. At the first word the man looked up, reining in, in surprise, and as she saw the black face of Abdul Morak the Abyssinian, she shrank back in terror among the branches, but it was too late. The man had seen her, and now he called to her to descend. At first she refused, but when a dozen black cavalrymen drew up behind their leader, and at Abdul Morak's command one of them started to climb the tree after her, she realized that resistance was futile, and came slowly down to stand upon the ground before this new captor and plead her cause in the name of justice and humanity. Angered by recent defeat, and by the loss of the gold, the jewels, and his prisoners, Abdul Morak was in no mood to be influenced by any appeal to those softer sentiments to which, as a matter of fact, he was almost a stranger, even under the most favorable conditions. He looked for degradation and possible death in punishment for his failures and his misfortunes when he should have returned to his native land and made his report to Menelik but an acceptable gift might temper the wrath of the emperor, and surely this fair flower of another race should be gratefully received by the black ruler. When Jane Clayton had concluded her appeal, Abdul Murak replied briefly that he would promise her protection, but that he must take her to his emperor. The girl did not need ask him why, and once again hope died within her breast. Resignedly she permitted herself to be lifted to a seat behind one of the troopers, and again under new masters her journey was resumed toward what she now began to believe was her inevitable fate. Abdul Morak, bereft of his guides by the battle he had waged against the raiders, and himself unfamiliar with the country, had wandered far from the trail he should have followed, and as a result had made but little progress toward the north since the beginning of his flight. Today he was beating toward the west in the hope of coming upon a village where he might obtain guides, but night found him still as far from a realization of his hopes as had the rising sun. It was a dispirited company which went into camp, waterless and hungry, in the dense jungle. Attracted by the horses, lions roared about the boma, and to their hideous din was added the shrill neighs of the terror-stricken beasts they hunted. There was little sleep for man or beast and the sentries were doubled that there might be enough on duty both to guard against the sudden charge of an overbold or overhungry lion, and to keep the fire blazing which was an even more effectual barrier against them than the thorny boma. 
It was well past midnight, and as yet Jane Clayton, notwithstanding that she had passed a sleepless night the night before, had scarcely more than dozed. A sense of impending danger seemed to hang like a black pall over the camp. The veteran troopers of the Black Emperor were nervous and ill at ease. Abdul Morak left his blankets a dozen times to pace restlessly back and forth between the tethered horses and the crackling fire. The girl could see his great frame silhouetted against the lurid glare of the flames, and she guessed from the quick, nervous movements of the man that he was afraid. The roaring of the lions rose in sudden fury until the earth trembled to the hideous chorus. The horses shrilled their neighs of terror as they lay back upon their halter ropes in their mad endeavors to break loose. A trooper braver than his fellows leaped among the kicking, plunging, fear-maddened beasts in a futile attempt to quiet them. A lion, large and fierce and courageous, leaped almost to the boma, full in the bright light from the fire. A sentry raised his piece and fired, and the little leaden pellet unstoppered the vials of hell upon the terror-stricken camp. The shot plowed a deep and painful furrow in the lion's side, arousing all the bestial fury of the little brain, but abating not a whit the power and vigor of the great body. Unwounded, the boma and the flames might have turned him back, but now the pain and the rage wiped caution from his mind, and with a loud and angry roar he topped the barrier with an easy leap and was among the horses. What had been pandemonium before became now an indescribable tumult of hideous sound. The stricken horse upon which the lion leaped shrieked out its terror and its agony. Several about it broke their tethers and plunged madly about the camp. Men leaped from their blankets and with guns ready ran toward the picket line, and then from the jungle beyond the boma a dozen lions, emboldened by the example of their fellow, charged fearlessly upon the camp. Singly and in twos and threes they leaped the boma until the little enclosure was filled with cursing men and screaming horses battling for their lives with the green-eyed devils of the jungle. With the charge of the first lion, Jane Clayton had scrambled to her feet, and now she stood horror-struck at the scene of savage slaughter that swirled and eddied about her. Once a bolting horse knocked her down, and a moment later a lion leaping in pursuit of another terror-stricken animal brushed her so closely that she was again thrown from her feet. Amidst the cracking of the rifles and the growls of the carnivora rose the death screams of stricken men and horses as they were dragged down by the blood-mad cats. The leaping carnivora and the plunging horses prevented any concerted action by the Abyssinians. It was every man for himself— and in the melee the defenseless woman was either forgotten or ignored by her black captors. A score of times was her life menaced by charging lions, by plunging horses, or by the wildly fired bullets of the frightened troopers. Yet there was no chance of escape, for now, with the fiendish cunning of their kind, the tawny hunters commenced to circle about their prey, hemming them within a ring of mighty yellow fangs and sharp long talons. Again and again an individual lion would dash suddenly among the frightened men and horses, and occasionally a horse, goaded to frenzy by pain or terror, succeeded in racing safely through the circling lions, leaping the boma, and escaping into the jungle. But for the men and the woman no such escape was possible. A horse, struck by a stray bullet, fell beside Jane Clayton. A lion leaped across the expiring beast full upon the breast of a black trooper just beyond. The man clubbed his rifle and struck futilely at the broad head, and then he was down and the carnivore was standing above him. 
Shrieking out his terror, the soldier clawed with puny fingers at the shaggy breast in vain endeavor to push away the grinning jaws. The lion lowered his head. The gaping fangs closed with a single sickening crunch upon the fear-distorted face, and turning, strode back across the body of the dead horse, dragging his limp and bloody burden with him. Wide-eyed, the girl stood watching. She saw the carnivore step upon the corpse, stumblingly as the grisly thing swung between its forepaws, and her eyes remained fixed in fascination while the beast passed within a few paces of her. The interference of the body seemed to enrage the lion. He shook the inanimate clay venomously. He growled and roared hideously at the dead, insensate thing, and then he dropped it and raised his head to look about in search of some living victim upon which to wreak his ill temper. His yellow eyes fastened themselves balefully upon the figure of the girl, the bristling lips raised, disclosing the grinning fangs. A terrific roar broke from the savage throat, and the great beast crouched to spring upon this new and helpless victim. Quiet had fallen early upon the camp where Tarzan and Werper lay securely bound. Two nervous sentries paced their beats their eyes rolling often toward the impenetrable shadows of the gloomy jungle. The others slept, or tried to sleep, all but the ape-man. Silently and powerfully he strained at the bonds which fettered his wrists. The muscles knotted beneath the smooth brown skin of his arms and shoulders. The veins stood out upon his temples from the force of his exertions. A strand parted, another and another, and one hand was free. Then from the jungle came a low guttural, and the ape-man became suddenly a silent, rigid statue, with ears and nostrils straining to span the black void where his eyesight could not reach. Again came the uncanny sound from the thick verdure beyond the camp. A sentry halted abruptly, straining his eyes into the gloom. The kinky wool upon his head stiffened and raised. He called to his comrade in a hoarse whisper. "'Did you hear it?' he asked. The other came closer, trembling. "'Hear what?' Again was the weird sound repeated, followed almost immediately by a similar and answering sound from the camp. The sentries drew close together, watching the black spot from which the voice seemed to come. Trees overhung the boma at this point, which was upon the opposite side of the camp from them. They dared not approach. Their terror even prevented them from arousing their fellows. They could only stand in frozen fear and watch for the fearsome apparition they momentarily expected to see leap from the jungle. Nor had they longed wait. A dim, bulky form dropped lightly from the branches of a tree into the camp. At sight of it, one of the sentries recovered command of his muscles and his voice. Screaming loudly to awaken the sleeping camp, he leaped toward the flickering watchfire and threw a mass of brush upon it. The white officer and the black soldiers sprang from their blankets. Flames leaped high upon the rejuvenated fire, lighting the entire camp, and the awakened men shrank back in superstitious terror from the sight that met their frightened and astonished vision. A dozen huge and hairy forms loomed large beneath the trees at the far side of the enclosure. The white giant, one hand freed, had struggled to his knees and was calling to the frightful nocturnal visitors in a hideous medley of bestial gutturals, barkings, and growlings. Werper had managed to sit up. He too saw the savage faces of the approaching anthropoids and scarcely knew whether to be relieved or terror-stricken. Growling, the great apes leaped forward toward Tarzan and Werper. Chulk led them. 
The Belgian officer called to his men to fire upon the intruders, but the negroes held back, filled as they were with superstitious terror of the hairy tree-men, and with the conviction that the white giant who could thus summon the beasts of the jungle to his aid was more than human. Drawing his own weapon, the officer fired, and Tarzan, fearing the effect of the noise upon his really timid friends, called to them to hasten and fulfill his commands. A couple of the apes turned and fled at the sound of the firearm, but Chulk and a half-dozen others waddled rapidly forward, and following the ape-man's directions, seized both him and Werper and bore them off toward the jungle. By dint of threats, reproaches, and profanity, the Belgian officer succeeded in persuading his trembling command to fire a volley after the retreating apes. A ragged, straggling volley it was, but at least one of its bullets found a mark, for as the jungle closed about the hairy rescuers, Chulk, who bore Werper across one broad shoulder, staggered and fell. In an instant he was up again, but the Belgian guessed from his unsteady gait that he was hard hit. He lagged far behind the others, and it was several minutes after they had halted at Tarzan's command before he came slowly up to them, reeling from side to side, and at last falling again beneath the weight of his burden and the shock of his wound. As Chulk went down, he dropped Werper, so that the latter fell face downward with the body of the ape lying half across him. In this position the Belgian felt something resting against his hands, which were still bound at his back, something that was not a part of the hairy body of the ape. Mechanically the man's fingers felt of the object resting almost in their grasp. It was a soft pouch, filled with small hard particles. Worker gasped in wonderment as recognition filtered through the incredulity of his mind. It was impossible, and yet it was true. Feverishly he strove to remove the pouch from the ape and transfer it to his own possession, but the restricted radius to which his bonds held his hands prevented this, though he did succeed in tucking the pouch with its precious contents inside the waistband of his trousers. Tarzan, sitting at a short distance, was busy with the remaining knots of the cords which bound him. Presently he flung aside the last of them and rose to his feet. Approaching Werper, he knelt beside him. For a moment he examined the ape. "'Quite dead,' he announced. "'It is too bad. He was a splendid creature.' And then he returned to the work of liberating the Belgian. He freed his hands first, and then commenced upon the knots at his ankles. "'I can do the rest,' said the Belgian. "'I have a small pocket-knife which they overlooked when they searched me, and in this way he succeeded in ridding himself of the ape-man's attentions, that he might find and open his little knife and cut the thong which fastened the pouch about Chulk's shoulder, and transfer it from his waistband to the breast of his shirt. Then he rose and approached Tarzan. Once again had Avarice claimed him. Forgotten were the good intentions which the confidence of Jane Clayton in his honor had awakened. What she had done, the little pouch had undone. How it had come upon the person of the great ape, Werper could not imagine, unless it had been that the anthropoid had witnessed his fight with Achmet Zek, seen the Arab with the pouch, and taken it away from him. But that this pouch contained the jewels of Opar, Werper was positive, and that was all that interested him greatly. "'Now,' said the ape-man, "'keep your promise to me. Lead me to the spot where you last saw my wife.' It was slow work, pushing through the jungle in the dead of night behind the slow-moving Belgian. The ape-man chafed at the delay, 
but the European could not swing through the trees as could his more agile and muscular companions, and so the speed of all was limited to that of the slowest. The apes trailed out behind the two white men for a matter of a few miles, but presently their interest lagged. The foremost of them halted in a little glade, and the others stopped at his side. There they sat peering from beneath their shaggy brows at the figures of the two men forging steadily ahead, until the latter disappeared in the leafy trail beyond the clearing. Then an ape sought a comfortable couch beneath a tree, and one by one the others followed his example, so that Werper and Tarzan continued their journey alone, nor was the latter either surprised or concerned. The two had gone but a short distance beyond the glade where the apes had deserted them, when the roaring of distant lions fell upon their ears. The ape-man paid no attention to the familiar sounds until the crack of a rifle came faintly from the same direction, and when this was followed by the shrill neighing of horses and an almost continuous fusillade of shots intermingled with increased and savage roaring of a large troop of lions, he became immediately concerned. "'Someone is having trouble over there,' he said, turning toward Werper. "'I'll have to go to them. They may be friends.' "'Your wife might be among them,' suggested the Belgian, for since he had again come into possession of the pouch, he had become fearful and suspicious of the ape-man, and in his mind had constantly revolved many plans for eluding this giant Englishman, who was at once his savior and his captor. At the suggestion Tarzan started as though struck with a whip. "'Oh!' he cried. "'She might be, and the lions are attacking them. They are in the camp.' I can tell from the screams of the horses. And there, that was a cry of a man in his death agonies. Stay here, man. I will come back for you. I must go first to them. And swinging into a tree, the lithe figure swung rapidly off into the night with the speed and silence of a disembodied spirit. For a moment, Werper stood where the ape-man had left him. Then a cunning smile crossed his lips. "'Stay here,' he asked himself. "'Stay here and wait until you return to find and take these jewels from me?' "'Not I, my friend, not I.' And turning abruptly eastward, Albert Werper passed through the foliage of a hanging vine and out of the sight of his fellow man forever. End of chapter 23